finally talked to a doctor this week about this cough I've been having for a long time, and uh, I'm going to be going probably next week and a half or two weeks up to see him, and uh, so pray for that, uh, that we get a good remedy for that. I'm getting tired of it, and I know y'all are too, so uh, hopefully he can find some solution to that. Psalm 2, if you will. Psalm 2. So I want to take uh, and make a few general uh, statements or uh, a couple of general statements this morning uh, regarding the Psalms and just by way of laying some groundwork for any future Psalms that we cover that may follow this pattern. Uh, Because they are considered poetic books, these are songs that are written um, many times, in fact most times, they uh, they, they have two ways that they can be viewed. Uh, one is in a literal sense, and, and certainly chapter, Psalm 2 is one of these that has a literal uh, indication of what's being said. Uh, but then it also uh, has an allegorical or a, a more, more spiritualized application of it. Um, and one of the best ways you can determine this is by the, the wording that is used. Uh, in Psalm 2, you're going to find that there uh, is... A literal application to King David himself specifically, but as you get further into the psalm, you're going to find some language that um, seems to be over the top, seems to be too large for referring to David, and that's because it has a secondary application of referring to the Lord Jesus and puts the main emphasis actually by using David as an illustration in his current day and problems to the day that the Lord is going to also reign. And um, so a lot of times the way you can tell is it'll use verbiage and and language that is above the point that it's trying to use literally uh, to illustrate uh, the lesson that it's teaching. And uh, so let's read through Psalm. It's only 12 verses. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying... Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Now, up until this point, you could say, okay, that can easily reference David, and it does. But then he goes on to say this, I will declare the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him." And so you can see how that from verse 7 on, there's some language that is used that obviously is not speaking specifically or literally of King David, but is now speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a, there's a, a type and an anti-type given here uh, of David and Christ uh, that, that is easily seen. Uh, one of the things I want to point out just in a note of passing before we get into the lesson of chapter 2 is so many times I have emphasize the issue of context uh, because it is so easy for us to take things out of context. And I would say this, that there are promises of Scripture that are, that are 
that are written and are documented in our scriptures that may or may not apply to everybody. And we got to be careful. There are times that I've seen people post verses of Scripture that is a promise that God made to a specific group or to a specific person. And one of these is found here uh, in verse number 8. I want you to notice this. It says, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. And people may post that verse and say, Well, God will give us what we ask for. And that, But that's not... The context of this. He is making this statement regarding Christ. Uh, it's not a promise that's given to every person, but it's something that is spoken of specifically of the Lord Jesus. And so be careful. Um, I know a lot of times on Facebook or some of these other places, you'll put a meme that you'll copy and paste it. The verse sounds great, and it, boy, you think, boy, that's a great promise. Make sure that it's applicable to us. Uh, go in and make sure that these verses are written to who you think they're written to and that they apply to us. Now, there are some promises that are given to Israel as a nation that God continues to allow those that are saved to be benefactors of that promise. (coughs) But there are some promises that are given exclusively for Israel and are not intended for anyone else. And so you you need to be careful of some of that and make sure that you understand what promises are for you and which ones are just being documented in Scripture that God gave to perhaps someone else. Uh, so anyway, just wanted to say that in passing. Um, so we have basically two different uh, views that are given. One is a literal view uh, showing King David, and there's no doubt uh, you can read in this first part how that there was opposition to David's reign um, against God's what they called God's anointed at this point. Uh, that there were people that were um, raging against him, that were trying to dethrone him as the king. And so we can see certainly from even historical accounts that it does have a literal understanding, uh, but also then has the allegorical. Uh, There was a fellow in the 1700s, his name was Robert uh, Loth, and I want to read to you what he said about Psalm 2 regarding the understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ being pictured here. He says this, There is indeed an uncommon glow in the expression and sublimity in the, fi- in the figures. And the diction is now and then exaggerated, as it were on purpose, to intimate and lead us to the contemplation of higher and more important matters concealed within. Color, the coloring which may perhaps seem too bold and glaring for the king of Israel will no longer appear so when laid at the feet of his great antitype, the Lord Jesus. After we have thus attentively considered the subjects apart, let us look at them together, and we shall behold the full beauty and majesty of this most charming poem. We shall perceive the two senses very distinct from each other, yet conspiring in perfect harmony and bearing a wonderful resemblance in every feature, while the analogy between them is so exactly preserved that either may pass for the original, from whence the other was copied. New light is continually cast upon the phraseology. Fresh weight and dignity are added to the sentiments. Till gradually ascending from things below to things above, from human affairs to those that are divine, they bear the great, important theme upwards. And at length, it in, it, at place it in the height and brightness of heaven. And I thought, boy, that's a... We don't write or talk that way anymore. That's 1700s kind of thinking. But, boy, what a... What a way to, to word this. 
that we, even though we even though we see the, the literal form of David, it takes us from the from the earthly to the divine. And by the time we're done reading the psalm, our hearts and our minds are soaring with the Lord Jesus Christ and the greatness and the might and the power that He has. In Psalm one, last week we compared or uh, made a contrast rather between uh, the righteous and or the godly and the ungodly, and uh, that there was a very clear distinction given there in the first psalm. In this psalm, we're seeing a contrast between uh, the disobedience of an ungodly world and the exaltation and the judgment of, of Christ Himself, the Son of God. Um, we saw the wicked in chapter 1 as chaff. In chapter 2, we see the wicked as those that are broken like a potter's vessel. Some people have called this psalm uh, the psalm of the Messiah, uh, the Prince. And uh, certainly it exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. There's three subjects that are dealt with in chapter 2. The first one is the people that are against God's anointed. Um, And we're going to look a little more closely at that here in just a few moments. The second one is the purpose of God to exalt His own Son. And then the third one is the ultimate reign of the Lord Jesus over all of His enemies. So these three subjects are dealt with. There are four stanzas to this, this song, if you will, this psalm. Uh, each of them been broken into three verses, and that's why we have 12 verses. And each set of three verses deals with a particular subject. Uh, in chapters 1 to 3, we find the nations that are raging. Uh, in uh, verses uh, 4 to 6, we find the Lord in heaven who is mocking those uh, that are, are uh, raging with contempt. And we're going to talk a little bit more fully about that. That's an interesting concept that the Lord mocks them. Uh, verses 7 to 9, uh, the Son, which is the Lord Jesus, proclaims a decree, and we're going to see what that is all about. And then in verses 10 to 12, we find the kings being advised to yield and to obey to the Lord's anointed. So uh, four divisions, four stanzas of three verses each, if you will, through chapter 2, or uh, I say chapter in Psalms, we don't call them chapters, we call them Psalms, so Psalm 2, all right? Uh, let's look at, first of all, at this first uh, division, this first stanza, verses 1 to 3. We're going to take a look at a few things here. And uh, the psalmist writes, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Uh, the very concept of man trying to rebel against Almighty God and think that they're going to they're going to make a, an impact or they're going to gain the victory in this in this uh, this conflict is ludicrous. It really is. When you think of who God is and who man is, what what arrogance for man to think that they can rebel against Almighty God and lift up a hand and and in defiance towards Him. Because we know from Scripture that their end is going to be judgment and the wrath of God poured out upon them. And that there's going to come a time where the most defiant and the most rebellious of all of them are going to bow a knee and declare that He is Lord. And that's an amazing thought, if you think about it, that there would be the audacity, the arrogance of mankind to do this. It makes you wonder why anybody would raise a hand of defiance or rebellion to a holy God. Yet we're looking at, in our day, uh, literally the majority of people on the earth that hate God. 
We're going to make a concluding statement at the end of this study that will tell us why that is. Why do men rebel so strongly against God? I want you to notice it's not only the people that are rebelling, but notice what the psalmist says here in verse number 2. He says, The kings of the earth set themselves. So it's not just the people. I think sometimes when we look at current day situations, we think, boy, there's just a lot of people out there and they all individually just hate God and they're defiant toward God. Can I tell you this, that according to, to Psalm 2, there is, in, at least in this occasion that the psalmist was referring to, a concerted effort, a combined effort, and it was a, an organized effort to lead the people in defiance against God. These are the kings of the earth. These are the leaders of the earth. And the Bible says these are the rulers. And they set themselves. And then I want you to notice in verse 2 this. And the rulers take what? Counsel together against the Lord. Uh, you say, well, you know, Brother Greg, there's a lot of people in the United States and to say that they're all coming together and making plans for this. Can I tell you this? That they, they are led by not just uh, physical human beings that are leaders, although there's a lot of that being said. But there's the prince of the power of the air, uh, principalities and powers that are leading their hearts. There's a concerted and a coordinated effort of defiance against God. And uh, it, I, I think sometimes we get in our minds that it's just a bunch of individuals that are all doing their own thing. No, no. There's a, there's a organization to it. There's a, there's a, there's a grouping together. Uh, and it seems to flourish. The more that people give heed to this, the more it grows. And we've seen that in our lifetime. We've watched as uh, certainly there have been uh, leaders, those that are influential over the hearts and minds of what we would call the people, that have led them in their defiance against God, to, to deny that God even exists. And so it's not a group of individual uh, rebellion. It's a group effort. Spurgeon said this <clears throat> regarding Psalm 2. He said, Oh, that men were half as careful in God's service to serve Him wisely as His enemies are to attack the kingdom craftily. Sinners have their wits about them, and yet saints are dull. Isn't that sad? It seems like the ungodly have the, have, have the organization part of it all together. And when they, when they strive against God, they all unify and they get behind it and they say, we're going to defy God. Oh, that God's servants would get behind the Lord Jesus. And follow Him collectively. And follow Him as a group. And say uh, that we would be careful to serve Him together. Uh, all that we would do this. The Bible tells us that we should be striving together for the faith of the Gospel. In the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Chapter 4, or, I'm sorry, verse number 4. Uh, we begin the second uh, section here, or second stanza. So we see these nations raging. It's not just individual people. It's people being led by the leaders who are counseling together. And there ought to be a lesson in that for us, that we as God's people ought to come together in our service for the Lord. And uh, it's hard to stand alone. But if we all join hand in hand and arm in arm and we are in like mind and of one heart and of one accord, it is much easier to stand for the Lord Jesus. doesn't mean it's easy, but it becomes easier when there's someone to stand with. And so certainly a lesson we learn there. Verse number 4. We now turn from this council chamber, if you will, of, of these rulers and the wicked uh, folks they are taking counsel against 
God and leading the people to do so. So now we're going to turn to the throne room of God. And in verse number 4, the Bible says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall, what? Laugh. The overpowering response, I wrote this question down, the overpowering response to verses 1 to 3, uh, the question that, that arises that just is in, the, in our brain, we think if people are doing this to God, then the question arises, what's He going to do to these people? <clears throat> these people that are rejecting Him. People that are undermining His, his appointed, his, his anointed one. The, the Lord Jesus being the one that uh, is to be the heir of all things. Uh, what, what is God's response to this? And, you know, the, the truth is, he could, he could raise himself up and go to battle with these folks right away, couldn't he? In fact, the truth is, they, they don't even stand a chance against him. But he, it, their, their, their end and their devices of what they're trying to accomplish is so ludicrous that it, it, it'll never be accomplished that God doesn't rise up in battle against them, uh, but He does laugh at them. And He's going to actually do two things here that we're going to see. The first one is he laughs, and the Bible says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Now, derision is, is a word a lot of people don't use anymore. Uh, it just means to simply to, to mock with contempt, uh, to make fun of, uh, and to have a, an animosity or contempt for what they're, what they're doing. And this is what derision is. And so he's laughing in the heavens. He's making fun of them. It kind of reminds me, if you remember uh, the story of Elijah and the uh, the uh, prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You remember that? And uh, in the middle of the day when it was getting hot and the uh, prophets of Baal were still crying out and Baal hadn't answered yet. And and uh, Elijah starts to mock them, doesn't he? He says, you may need to cry louder. Maybe he's asleep or uh, maybe he's on a trip. And he's mocking them with contempt at what they're doing. And it kind of gives that idea. If that's a good illustration, maybe to, to try to show the attitude that God's taking towards these things. And so the Bible says that he uh, shall have them in derision. And then the Bible says this. This is the second thing he does. First, he laughs at them, he mocks at them, and he has contempt for them. In, in verse number 5, the Bible says, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. And here's what he says. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. What a statement. What a statement. It doesn't matter what these people do. The one I want to be there is still going to be there. I've set him on the mountain. There's nothing they can do. There's no amount of rebellion. There's no amount of, uh, of going against his anointed. There's no amount of trying to dethrone him that's going to cause that to happen. God pretty well says, I've declared this, that it's going to happen, and it's going to happen. He said, I speak unto them in my wrath. It says, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And boy, I'll tell you what, as a Christian, that ought to give us a lot of encouragement. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There's nothing the devil can say to us or do to us that can cause us to, to lose our faith in God being faithful. Because whatever God's design is and whatever God's intent is throughout the plan of history is going to come to pass. It's going to happen. And there is nothing that Satan can do. There's nothing that uh, those that follow Satan can do. There's nothing that the rulers of this world can do to stop what God has in store. I love this statement. And so he, 
responds kind of in a way that shows the futility, if you will, of these folks that are raging. I mean, they're, they're angry. They're raging. They're coming together. They're trying to be united on this thing. And God ridicules them. He mocks them. And He, he speaks in such a way that it just shows how frivolous they are in, in what they're saying. You, you may try to overthrow my anointed, but guess what? I've already put him on there. He's there, and he's not going to be moved, and it's going to happen, and there's nothing you can do that will, that will stop that. One commentator wrote this about it. He says, Greater conflicts may be here foretold, but we may be confident that victory will be given to our Lord and King. Glorious triumphs are yet to come. Hasten them, we pray, O Lord. It is Zion's glory and joy that her king is in her, guarding her from foes and filling her with good things. Jesus sits upon the throne of grace and the throne of power in the midst of His church. In Him is Zion's best safeguard. Let her citizens be glad in Him. Uh, Turn with me, if you will, for a moment to... uh, Acts chapter number 4, I think it is. Do I have that here? Yes, Acts chapter number 4. And uh, let's look in verse number 25 for a moment, because again, not only do we see this in the book of Psalms, but we see it again in the New Testament. Acts chapter 4, verse number 25. The Bible says, "...who by the mouth of thy servant David," in reference to Psalm 2, actually... Is, is what he's referring to. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast appointed, uh, anointed, excuse me, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy, uh, thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal that the signs and wonders may be done by the name of this holy child. In other words, they are not going to have power over him. He's going to have the power over them. And what a joy it is to know this. And uh, this one commentator said this, Let her citizens be glad in him. In Psalm 2, verse number 7, he says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, speaking of God the Father, God Almighty. And this is now the Lord Jesus speaking in verse number 7. So we've gone from the, uh, the heathen and the people and the rulers and the kings and their uh, threatening and they're, they're doing all that they can against uh, the Lord Jesus. And then we find the Lord Himself, God Himself, that is in heaven. He's mocking them. He's laughing at them. He's showing how, um, how, how uh, it's, just, it's just a waste of time on their case because His purpose is going to be done. And then we have Christ Himself coming on the scene in verse number 7. And it says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my Son. This day have I begotten thee. As if... Whatever the Father said was not enough, which it was. The Lord Jesus comes on the scene, and He he now speaks of His own uh, power that's been given to Him, and warning the the kings and the people that stand in opposition to Him uh, about what's going to be done if they don't change their ways. 
And so uh, look with me now in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And we're going to come right back again, so hold your place. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1 and verse number 1. We're going to read four verses here. Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. By the way, time out on the lesson for a minute. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people that want position and affluence and notoriety in life, even in the, even in the light of Christianity. And can I say this? There's no greater there's no greater compliment. There's no greater title, I believe, in Scripture, than to say, "I'm a servant." Paul said, "A servant of Jesus Christ." It's amazing how many times Paul says this, and some of the other apostles have said this: "A servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God." which He had promised before by His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So He changes the subject to Christ. Now, in reference to Christ, He says this, "...which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God," notice this, "...with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead." The Lord Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power. Now, we go back to Psalm 2 and verse 7. And the decree that he's saying is, The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And here's what the Lord has also said to Jesus. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. The Lord Jesus only needs ask the Father, and all of these heathen that are raging are his. To, pro to proclaim judgment on, to do as he sees fit. And notice, he says in verse number 8, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thy inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them, notice this, with the rod of iron. Now again, we're not talking here about people who have re uh, repented of their rebellion and their unbelief and turned to God. We are talking here about people who are, who are defiant about God. Don't have anything to do with Him. Try to overthrow uh, His anointed one. And the Bible says that uh, when Jesus judges them in verse number 9, which He will do, we studied Revelation recently, uh, He will do in the end times. He'll judge them. And the Bible says this, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is how, this is how ludicrous it is for these people... And that's what, I guess, maybe makes it even more uh, astounding to us and more amazing to us as we consider why in the world would man ever become defiant to God? God's the one who created this. Just by, just by speaking, He created all that was and formed man out of the dust of the ground. And all He's got to do is speak again, and His judgment happens. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. He's going to break them like a potter's vessel. And this is the end of them that are going to continually go against Him and to, to defy Him. And so, Jesus now gives a charge. And we move to the last stanza, if you will. The last uh, uh, verse of Scripture that is three verses long. last stanza of the, of the psalm. This is the, this is the conclusion of the matter. He says, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings... Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
So now he goes to counsel giving, that he's giving to those that are rebellious. And he makes, he makes a, an interesting statement here. He says, Be wise now, therefore. There's an urgency in that statement. Delay no longer. Don't, don't continue in this. Uh, your warfare against me cannot succeed. Uh, all power is given to me. The, the Father has, has told me so, and it's, it's mine for the asking, and certainly He's going to see that I judge the world. And so you need to learn to yield yourselves cheerfully to my obedience. To the one that is able to pronounce judgment on them, they need to come and say, Yes, Lord, and yield to Him. So I wrote this statement down, How wise it is to obey Jesus, and how dreadful it is for those that continue to be His enemy. How wise it is to obey Jesus, and how dreadful it is for those who continue to be His enemy. Someone wrote this. They said, Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Have we a share in this blessedness? Do we trust Him? Our faith may be slender as a spider's thread, but if we be real, we are in our measure blessed. The more we trust, the more fully shall we know this blessedness. We may therefore close the psalm with the prayer of the apostles, Lord, increase our faith. I'm going to give a couple of concluding thoughts here. Uh, that we can gain from this. He says in verse number 11, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and ye perish from the way. When His wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Why is it that the heathen rage? I don't believe it's because of their ignorance of what Jesus is capable of. I don't believe it's because of their ignorance that He is going to rule and judge them one day. There may be some of the people that may be that way and ignorant of it, but certainly the leaders are not. And so, probably, and I would think the most important reason why they do this, why they oppose uh, Christ, they, they oppose His truth, they oppose His Word, they oppose the fact that He is Lord, is because of their hatred to the restraints of godliness. They don't want to. They don't want to leave their sin. They they have. And I don't know how many times I've heard people say this. I don't want to have to. I don't have want to have to change. I don't want to have to give up what I'm doing now. And I've talked to people. I've shared the gospel with people, and they've said, "But I'd have to give up so much." And all they can see is the restriction that is there. But you know, the Bible tells us that to those that are saved, the commands of God are not grievous. They're the strength of our life. They're the joy of our life. They're the things we, we love about being saved because we get to show our love for Him and obedience to them. And so, probably the greatest reason, we talk about this, this arrogance, this, this futility uh, of these folks that are raging and and define God. Why is it that they continue to do so? Why is it in the day that we live, so many people are anti-God? Uh, you walk up to somebody and they will say, well, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic. And most of them that say they're atheists are really probably not atheists, but more agnostic. 
And uh, one of the reasons that they're that way is because they don't want to have to admit that there's a God. Why is it that the theory of evolution has become so prominent and has now become accepted science? Because the alternative is to believe that there's a God. And if there's a God, then He has the right to make the rules. And we don't want to live by His rules. And that is the reasoning. That's the motivation many times. And then I would say this. True wisdom, according to verse number 12. He says, Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. True wisdom. Wisdom that is fit for kings and judges and people that are influential, uh, people that are common. True wisdom lies in obedience to Christ. True wisdom lies in obedience to Christ. It's a great song, and there's an awful lot to it. Uh, and maybe through the notes we've done today and some, some explanation of this, next time you read it, uh, maybe it'll be very clear to you. And it ought to cause those of us that are saved to have an even more exalted view of the Lord Jesus Christ. His role in our lives. How yielded and submitted we need to be to Him. And so I hope that will help you. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And Lord, what a great psalm we have studied this morning. And Lord, the perfectness with which You so inspired these words to the writers.